you. Or if you have notes, um, just make sure you have some notes because we're going to go through a lot of scripture and this way you can follow up much easier with me. Hebrews chapter 2. We're actually going to read verses uh, 9 and 10. We finished verse 9 last week, but we're going to read it again this week, even though we're only going to study verse 10, because uh, verse 10, we're going to make a lot of references back to verse 9. So I just want to remind us of verse 9 and then move forward to verse 10. So that's Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in leading many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvations Salvation perfect through sufferings. Can we all read verse 10 together? This is where we're going to stop today, but it's so good. Let's just read it all together out loud. Uh, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Amen. So this is week 11 um, when we are uh, studying in the book of Hebrews and we have arrived to chapter 2 verse 10. Just to recap, uh, the book of Hebrews is written to Jews, Jews, Hebrews, right? It was written to the Hebrews. Um, These are people who were Jewish at one point. Then they came into faith into Christ Jesus. They became Christian. And then after that, they wanted to leave the Christian faith probably mainly because of persecution, and they wanted to go back to be Jews. So the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to them to encourage them never to do that. The first 10 chapters is pretty much talking about how Jesus, how Christianity is superior than Judaism. The New Testament is superior than the Old Testament. And then uh, the last two or three chapters is just encouraging them, giving them some practical tips on how they can live their life and how they can endure persecution. We say that verses 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, we spent four weeks there. We talked about how the author of Hebrews was arguing that Jesus is superior to the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse, chapter 1, verse 4, we said that's kind of like a transitional verse. And then really from verse 4 of chapter 1 all the way till the end of chapter 2, he's arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels, right? The first block of thought that he has was from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way till the end of chapter 1, verse 14, where he is arguing that the superiority of Christ to the angels was demonstrated by the Old Testament. And he quoted seven different scriptures from the Old Testament to prove his point that Jesus is superior to the angels apart from the New Testament, just by quoting the Old Testament scripture. Then he paused his thoughts in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, and he gave one of five, his first of five warnings that he gave to the Hebrews throughout the epistle to strictly, strictly prohibit them from even considered being drifted away and consider Judaism. So the first warning was chapter 2, verse 1 and 4, kind of a pause, and he just delivered his first warning there. And then we picked up last week from chapter 2, verse 5, all the way till the end of the chapter, 
He's still continuing his argument that Jesus is superior than the angels. And now he's like using his incarnation, his humanity as a proof of his superiority. So in a way, he's arguing two main points here. Number one is that Jesus' humility, his humanity, his incarnation was temporary in nature. That's what we have seen in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, till all the end of, uh, almost the end of verse 9. He's quoting Psalm 8, and he's saying that Jesus, even though he was made, was made lower than the angels, that was just a temporary for a little while. The fact that he was little, lower than the angel is not a permanent thing, and he went back to be crowned with glory and honor, far much superior than the angels. And then from the very end of verse 9 all the way till the end of the chapter, here is what the author of Hebrews is arguing. He's saying that even though the humility of Jesus was temporary in its nature, yet it was eternal in its purposes. Amen? And that's why he's far more superior than the angels. And then the author of Hebrews listed five eternal purposes that was accomplished through the humility and the incarnation of Christ. The first one is that Jesus, through his humility, he tasted death on behalf of everyone. That's what we talked about last week, and that is the end of chapter 9. The second eternal purpose is that he was perfected through suffering. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, verse 10. Next week, we're going to be talking about how through the humility, Jesus has accomplished that eternal purpose is that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And then purpose number four, to destroy the devil and deliver those who are because of the fear of death lived all their life long in bondage. That's verse 14 and 16. And then the fifth eternal purpose that was accomplished through the incarnation and the suffering of Christ is that he has become a merciful and faithful high priest to you and me. And we see that in verse 14 and verse 18, the very last two verses of chapter 2. So that's pretty much the overview of what's going on here. Again, the author of Hebrews is arguing that even though the humility of Christ was temporary in nature, it was eternal in its purposes. Amen? Amen. Last week, we stopped at verse 9. We finished verse 9 last week. And we said, let's read verse 9. Uh, I can read it for us. And then we'll recap last week and move on to this week. Last week we say we, we did this, but we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels because of the incarnation for the suffering of death now is crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of God. But why did he incarnate in the first time? Why did he suffer death? Here is what the author of Hebrews is telling us that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Amen. Amen. Last week we say that there is three reasons or three points of the incarnation in that verse. Number one, that the cross was the main point of the incarnation. He incarnated for the suffering of death, that he might taste death. So the cross was the main reason for the incarnation. But number two, the cross also was a pure act of the grace of God. Because it says, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. And number three, the cross was Jesus' death as a substitution for everyone, right? So that's the three points that we talked about last week. Number one, the cross was the reason for the incarnation. Number two, the cross was an act of the grace of God. And number three, the cross was Jesus' death as a substitution for everyone. Now we move on to verse 10 today. 
And in verse 10, the author of Hebrews is still continuing his uh, characteristics or the benefits that we have gained from or have been demonstrated by the suffering on the cross of Christ. And here in verse 10, he's highlighting to us another three characteristics or another three benefits for the incarnation and the suffering of Christ. Amen. Number one, the cross or the suffering, it was fitting for the father. Number two, it brought many sons to glory. And number three, it made the captain of our salvation perfect. Amen? Three benefits or characteristics additional to Jesus' incarnation and suffering. Let's say it together so I know they're still awake. Number one, it was fitting for the Father. Number two, it brought many sons to glory. Number three, it made the captain of our salvation perfect. So let's highlight these three characteristics or benefits from the cross or the suffering of Christ, Christ and his incarnation. Number one, it was fitting for him. That's why he said it was fitting for him. For whom are all things and by whom are all things? Who is that that the author of Hebrews is talking about here? He's talking about God, the Father, right? And look how he described him here. He said, he is the one for whom, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying by describing the father this way is that the father is sovereign. He is in charge. He is in control of everything. He's the creator of everything and he's the purpose of everything. In other words, the author of Hebrews is telling us that nothing that happens in this universe without the permission and the precise plan of God. Amen? Including the salvation and the incarnation of Christ and his death on the cross. So by describing the Father as the one from whom are all things and by whom are all things, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus' temporary incarnation and his suffering on the cross on our behalf was not a random act, was not an afterthought. That was the very precise plan of God who precisely planned every single minute detail in this creation. Amen? Amen. So what the author of Hebrews is telling us is this. It was fitting for him. That Jesus would die on the cross. It fit him. This is such an interesting description. The author of Hebrews is telling us here that the cross was suitable for the attributes of the Father. It, the cross matched his characters. The cross fitted with who the Father is, his personality. The cross made sense in the light of who the Father is. It fitted him. It made perfect sense in the light of the characters of the Father that Jesus would die on the cross as a substitute for us. Amen? Amen. So how is it? How is it that Jesus dying on the cross will be fitting Perfect match makes sense to in the light of who God the Father is. Here is what it is. We know from the scripture that God is just. Amen? A just God is a God who will never let one single sin go unpunished. Right? If, if, if there is a just judge and he selectively punished some law that is broke, broken and let some other laws go unpunished, then this is not a just judge, right? This is a corrupt judge. Amen? But God is not corrupt. He is just, right? So God is just. He's, he will punish every single sin every single human being has ever committed. Whether it's an idle word or whether it's stealing and robbery, it doesn't matter. God is just and he is going to just judge sin. 
And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. To be eternally separated from God. The problem is we all have sinned against God, right? There is not a single soul in this world that have not sinned and have provoked the wrath and the judgment of God. But in the same token, God is also love. God is love, the Bible says. He's gracious. He's merciful. And he doesn't want none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So in a way, when man fall in sin, God had a problem. He had a dilemma in a way, right? One part of him want to punish the sinners because they have sinned against him. And one part of him want the sinners to go free because he loves them. So how can it be? How can God, how can God punish sin without, without compromising his love to the sinners? Or even yet, how can God forgive the sinners without compromising his justice? This is a problem, right? And the answer to both questions is one word, which is the cross, right? When Jesus died on the cross, God demonstrated both his justice and his love and his mercy in the same time. God demonstrated his justice because he did not let sin go unpunished. He poured out his judgment over every single sin that was ever committed on Jesus on the cross. Amen? But in the same token, he also showed grace and mercy to every single sinner who broke the law of God. Because now, God is willing and able to forgive our sins if we just repent and turn to him. Amen? That's why it was fitting for him that Jesus would die on the cross. Because it matched the characters of God. Through the cross, God never compromised his justice. Yet he never compromised his love and his mercy and his grace in the same time. Perfect justice and perfect grace were both demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross. Amen? And that's what the author of Paul was telling us as well in Romans 3, 25-26. Look at this amazing verse. Paul was telling us about Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation, as our mercy seat, as our atoning sacrifice, by his blood. And through the death of Christ, what happened? Look at this. God the Father, that he might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you guys see that? The just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that phrase, the just, be the just and the justifier, that's an oxymoron attributes of God, right? No one person can be just and justifier in the same time. You guys follow me? If you're just, you want to punish sin. You don't want to let the sinner go unpunished. That's how you are just. And if you are the justifier of the one who sins, then you're not really just because you let his sin go unpunished. Thus, you are the justifier of the one who sinned. You guys are with me? It's impossible that you can be the just and the justifier in the same time. You're either or. You're either just or justifier, but you cannot be both just and justifier in the same time. You guys are with me? But God was able to be both just and justifier in the same time. How? When Jesus died as our propitiation on the cross. God has demonstrated that he is just. Because every single sin was punished in Jesus on the cross. But God also has demonstrated that he is the forgiven justifier God. For every single one who placed his trust in Jesus. Amen? 
And that's precisely the point that the author of Hebrews is making here. He's saying that it was fitting for the characters of God. It was fitting for the fact that God is perfect justice and perfect righteousness and perfect love. Can never, none of them can be compromised. It was fitting for him that Jesus will be our substitute. That he will suffer as the captain of our salvation. Amen? And remember what was the very first word that verse 10 started with? It started with the for, right? For it was fitting for him, right? The word for here means that what is coming after it is an explanation of what was before it, right? He said something, now he's explaining that using the word for, and now he's elaborating on his original thought. And right before that, he said that Jesus have tasted death, by the grace of God, death on behalf of everyone. So now he's elaborating, how is it that Jesus have died on behalf of everyone, and how through that, God has demonstrated his grace. Amen? He elaborated on that by saying, for it was fitting for God that Jesus will be our substitute on the cross, that he will be perfected through suffering. Think about that. He's elaborating on how God showed his grace by saying it was fitting for God to show his grace only in the context of Jesus being our substitute on the cross. Amen? In other words, here is what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying it was never possible for the grace of God to be shown to sinners apart from the justice of God that was demonstrated on the cross. You guys are with me? It was impossible, he said, that the grace of God could ever be shown to sinners apart from the justice of God that was shown when Jesus died on the cross for us. Amen? And that is what is fitting for God. That is who God is and how the cross makes perfect sense in the light of his perfect justice and in the light of his perfect grace and perfect mercy. Amen? Now I tell you one thing this morning. It might be very well fitting for the God of Islam to let sinners just go unpunished. You break the law, that's fine. Just do a couple of good deeds and I'll forgive you. It might be very fitting for the God of Islam to do that. Amen? It might be very fitting for the God of Hinduism to say, Oh, just offset your sins by doing a couple of good deeds and you're good. It might be very fitting for the gods of this age, the gods of this world, the false gods, that they will be not that good of just gods that they are willing to compromise their justice if you do a couple of good deeds to offset that. Amen? But it is not fitting for the true and living God to compromise His justice even if you have repented of your sins. Amen? What is fitting for the true and living God, the God who is perfectly just, perfectly gracious in the same time, that Jesus will die on the cross and in that He will demonstrate in the same time both His perfect justice and His perfect grace for sinners. Amen? It was, uh, what? Fitting for him. For whom are everything and by whom everything. In bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Amen? The cross matches the attributes of God. It makes sense in the light of who God is. Amen? So number one, the cross was fitting for the Father. Number two, what happened because of the suffering of Christ? Many sons have been led, guided to glory, right? That's what it says here. In bringing, in leading many sons to glory, it makes sense that God will make Jesus, the captain of their salvation, suffer in order that many sons will come to glory. Now, 
what the author of Hebrews is telling us in this phrase is this. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have been lifted from being slaves to sin to being sons of God. Amen? And not only that, but we also have been lifted from the shame and abasement of sin to the very glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's look at that. First thing he said that in leading many sons to glory. Who are these sons? That's you and me, right? But forget, don't forget what we were, what we were before Jesus. We were slaves to sins, right? That's what he said multiple times before. John 8, 34, Romans 6, 20. We were slaves to sin, right? But because of Jesus, what he has done for us on the cross, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to God, which is far much better, right? But not only slaves to God, we are also have become children of the most high God. Amen? Yeah. Ephesians 1.5, he has predestined us for adoption to sonship. How? Through Jesus Christ in accordance with what? With the pleasure of his will. Have you ever seen parents, couple of parents, who are going to adopt a kid? Let me ask you a question. What action this kid would do? Here, Justina, you have 120 kids in your orphanage. What merits the kids have to do in order for, for you to take them in? Do they have to show certain academic grades that they've done very well at the school? No. Do they have to be very wealthy, very well-behaved? No, nothing. What merits do you have to be in order to be adopted? Really, you don't have to have any merits, right? It's all because of the person who want to adopt you. He's just being good. And that's what, the, what Paul was telling us here. We have been adopted in the family of God. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're good enough. As a matter of fact, we don't deserve it. And we're very bad. We don't even need to be there. We have been adopted in the very family of God. According to His good pleasure. Amen. Because God is a good God. He's a merciful and gracious God. That's why He brought us in to be His very own children. And that's what John said the same thing. He said, look at this. So great, see what great love, what great love the Father has lavished on us in this. That he, that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Amen. The very fact that God will lift a bunch of sinners like you and me from the miry clay, from the bottom of the pit, lift us up to be His very own children for all eternity, His sons and daughters. That's an amazing love that God can never... Ex- That's just the climax of the love of God for us. Amen? And it was made possible only because Jesus suffered for us as a captain of our salvation. Amen? But we have not just been adopted into the family of God according to the author of Hebrews 2 here. But we also are recipient of the very glory of God, right? It says that in bringing many sons to what? To glory that he might perfect the captain of their salvation through sufferings. The word glory here that the author of Hebrews is using is probably referring to the splendor of the ultimate salvation that he talked about multiple times already through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember in chapter 1 verse 14, he said that we're going to inherit salvation, right? And then in chapter 2 verse 5, he said that the world to come will subject to Christ. And then in chapter verse 9, we just read that. It says that everything will be under subjection to Christ in the world to come, right? So he's talking in the context of our future salvation that we're waiting for. And he said that it was perfect fitting in terms of the character of God in order to bring us to that future glory that Jesus must suffer on our behalf on the cross. Amen? 
And the fact that we're going to receive glory, it is all over the scripture. And it's just so, I was just reading these verses yesterday. So powerful, so amazing. Look at this. Romans 9, 23. Look at this. And that he might make known, when God showed you and me in grace and, and, and mercy, he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he had preferred beforehand for what? Glory. Amen. Think about that. Put your name in that verse and think about what God had for you. God has prepared Cami beforehand so he can be the recipient of his glory. That blows my mind away, right? And that should blow your mind away. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For the very light affliction that we are suffering that now, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and what? Eternal way of glory. Wow. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure all things, Paul said, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. How? With eternal glory. We're going to obtain eternal glory when Jesus comes. Amen? 1 Peter 5 verse 1 and verse 10 I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, and what? Look at this. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And later down that chapter, he said in verse 10, but may the God of all grace who called us to what? To not just a glory, His, His, His eternal glory. Think about that. We are called to God's very own glory, the eternal glory of God. We are called to that. How? By Christ Jesus. If that doesn't blow your mind away, nothing else will blow your mind away. Amen? Think about that. This is the kind of salvation that is fitting for our God. Amen? That he picks a bunch of people who are in the abasement and then the bottom and the bottom of the shame of sin. Who have been so marred and so disfigured because of the disgustness and the sinfulness of sin. And he lifts them up all the way up to be his own children. And not only that, down the road we also will obtain and be partaker of God's very own eternal glory. Amen? Now, this is as good of a salvation as it ever gets. Amen? And it's all happening because that is the kind of salvation that is fitting for the Father. Amen? So the cross was what is fitting for the characters of God. It's because of the cross that many sons, which is you and me now, are being led and guided to the very eternal glory of God. But number three description of that cross is this, that it was fitting for God, for, for whom are everything and by whom and everything, in bringing many sons to glory to do what? To make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Amen? That's the third character of the cross, third accomplishment of the cross and the suffering of Jesus and his temporary incarnation. The author of Hebrews has very unique descriptions of Christ. We'll be talking about that as we go forward. But this is one of the very ones that you don't find anywhere else, the captain of our salvation. The Greek word for captain here that the author of Hebrews is used is um, archegios. I think I'm butchering how you say it, you say it but it's, it's really two words together. The first part is arche, which, which we get the word archangel from, arche, which is beginning, 
first leader, something to that effect, the, the, the head, the, sup- the supreme, arche. And then the word um, ego, which li- really means to lead. And it is very interesting because that word, the second part, ego, which literally means to lead or to guide, is what he just used in the previous verse when he said, in bringing many sons to glory, the Greek word for bringing is also ego. It's the exact same root that the author of Hebrews used in the word bringing. He also used later to describe Jesus as the captain of our salvation. You guys are with me? What the author of Hebrews is literally saying is like this. In leading many sons to glory, the leader was perfected through suffering. You guys are with me? He used the exact same Greek word that in bringing and in captain to describe that idea that Jesus, not only the same word, but actually in the grammar, it is the same gender, number, and case. So the Greek here... The grammar between the word bringing and captain is almost identical, which gives us the idea that the author of Hebrews is saying that the father was bringing so, was leading so many sons to glory, and the one who was leading them into that very glory is Jesus himself. Amen? He was the forerunner. He was the pathfinder. He was the one who led the way for many sons to come to glory. Amen? Listen to this. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. The author of Hebrews is saying that every single person in the human race was shut away from God because of the guilt of sin and because of the punishment of sin. And that way of salvation into glory was shut for all the human race till Jesus come. And after Jesus come, he was the forerunner. He was the first one who opened that door through his death and his resurrection. And he led the way for all the other sons of God that they also can come to glory. Amen? In other words, the author of Hebrews said that without Jesus, that way would have never been opened. Because he is the leader, he's the pathfinder, he's the one who opened that door. He is the front runner, the forerunner to open that way of salvation for us. Amen? Amen. This is good stuff. Amen? And the idea that Jesus is the forerunner, the pathfinder, was mentioned a couple of other times in the book of Hebrews. This is not something the author of Hebrews is shy from saying. Hebrews 6, 19 to 20, here is what he said. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where our forerunners has entered for us. Who is that forerunner? Namely, Jesus. Our forerunners' first name is Jesus. Namely, Jesus, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Amen? Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the forty holiest by the blood of Jesus. Look at this. And you and living way which he, Jesus, consecrated, opened for us through the tearing of his flesh on the cross represented by the tearing of the veil in the tabernacle. Amen. Jesus is the forerunner. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here. He's the pathfinder. He's the one who opened that way wide open for every single sinner that they ever can ever obtain salvation and come into the very glory of God. Amen? Amen. There's no salvation apart from Jesus. But not only that, it says that Jesus was also made perfect through suffering. What does that mean? You probably have heard this before. How, how is it that Jesus is perfect through suffering? Well, the author of Hebrews said that at least one more time. 
In Hebrews 5, 8 to 9, it says this. Though he was a son, that's Jesus being a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he has suffered because of the suffering. And look at this. Having been, what? Perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Same idea that he mentioned here in verse 10 is repeating again in verse 5. That through suffering, Jesus was perfected. So what does it mean that Jesus was perfected through sufferings? Well, let me highlight two small points here. Number one, the author of Hebrews is definitely not talking about the person of Jesus being imperfect and was perfected through suffering. He mentioned that Jesus was sinless a couple of times at least in the book of Hebrews. In, in Hebrews 4.15 and 7.26, the author of Hebrews himself said that Jesus is sinless. There's no sin in him. So he's obviously not talking about his person or his nature being perfected because Jesus is perfect because he's without sin. Amen? But number two, the word suffering that he used here is actually plural. It's not singular in Greek. It's plural. So he's literally saying Jesus was made perfect through sufferings, many sufferings that he endured. So that obviously covers the suffering of the cross. But it also goes above and beyond that to all the sufferings that Jesus has endured even through his ministry while he was here on earth. Amen? So how is it? Well, both suffering actually made Jesus the perfect salvation leader for the fallen human race. Number one, through the suffering of, of the cross, he paid in full the penalty of our sins, your sins and my sins. And because of that, the justice of God is satisfied and we can be saved. Amen? Without the suffering on the cross... In spite of the fact that Jesus is perfect and sinless in his being, he still cannot be qualified to be our Savior. You guys are with me? Because our Savior has to pay for our sins. And if our Savior doesn't pay for our sins, he's, he's unqualified to be our Savior. Amen? So the suffering of the cross in a way qualified Jesus only in terms of him being the captain of our salvation. So that through him we can be saved. But not only that, the author of Hebrews also talk about the sufferings that he endured. How people rejected him. How they despised him. How they called him names. How they mocked him and shamed him and called him all sorts of rejections that we talked about multiple times before. And that kind of suffering that Jesus endured qualifies him to be a perfect high priest. As a matter of fact, till the end of the chapter, the author of Hebrews is keep elaborating on that. How that Jesus, because he was tempted in every single area, just like you and me, except in sin. Now he is a merciful and faithful high priest. And he is able to intercede on our behalf for God. For he tasted and he has seen all the kind of suffering that we have endured. Amen? Amen? So it's like you come to Jesus and you experience the loss of, of a friend or somebody who's a, a family member and so dear to you. And you come to God and say, God, I'm, my heart is broken. Jesus will say, I know. I have tasted that. I have seen that. I have experienced that. I had my heart broken before when I was living on earth. He has tasted and he has been experienced every single suffering that we have already had. And because of that, when he prays for us, he's able to intercede very well because he was there himself. And he, can, he has experienced the very pain and the very suffering that we are enduring. Amen? So when the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, he's not talking about his person or his nature. He's talking about in terms of qualification as the leader of our salvation. Amen? Very good. Let me just close with that thought. Let's go back, compare verse 9 and verse 10. Let's go to the very end of verse 9. 
Let's read the whole thing together. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for how many? Everyone. How many? Everyone. So how many Jesus has died for according to number nine? Everyone. Now let's move on to verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing everyone to glory that he might perfect the captain of their salvation through suffering. Does it say that? No. How many he's going to bring to glory? Many. Think about that. Jesus died for many? No. Jesus died for? Everyone, but how many are coming to glory? Not everyone gonna come to glory, only many gonna come to glory. You guys follow me? You see what he's trying to tell us here? It's the same idea that we have seen before in Isaiah 53 when we analyze that chapter. In verse 6 of Isaiah 53, we see that we all have sinned against God, each has gone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us. Oh, right? The whole world's sin was punished on Jesus. But if you move on to verse 11 of Isaiah 53, we read this. By knowing him, my righteous servant will justify not all but many. many. The same idea that the author of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus died for all, but not all going to enter into glory. Not all going to have life. Only many going to do that. You know why? Because you have to make up your mind. He's not going to force his salvation on you. His salvation is available for you, but it's not going to be forced on you. You're the one who has to decide to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus and turn your life around and give it and surrender it 100% to him. Amen? Amen? If you don't do your part, in spite of the fact that Jesus died for you, you're still not going to enter into glory. Amen? John 3.16, let's say it together and pray. For God so loved, how many? The world. That He gave His Son for who? The world, right? He loved the world. He gave His Son for the world. That the whole world should not perish, but all should come to repentance, right? But those who, that those who believe in Him, not the whole world, only those who believe should not perish, but have an eternal life. Amen? That's your choice. That's not God's choice, if you want to believe or not. Amen? If you want to ask me, what should I do this morning? I say, just all what you have to do, just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. I cannot be made right with God on my own merits. But I come to you today. I repent, and I ask you to come into my heart and change me. And that's all what it takes. Jesus will literally come into your heart. He'll make you a brand new creation. And you will leave this place one of the very sons and daughters of God. And not only that, you will definitely inherit glory. Because this is not dependent on you. This is dependent on God. All what you have to do is just receive it. Accept it. Quit trying to be good. Quit trying to please God through your own good works. Because your good works are getting you nowhere. Just trust and the sufficiency and the righteousness and the perfect salvation that Jesus has done for you. Cross. Amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and pray.